Welcome back to another episode of the Mismanagement Show. And today I'm so excited to have Cleo Stiller to join us today. And she is the author of Modern Manhood. And I think it's really interesting now that I've kind of just passed the halfway mark of my 100 Mass Men series to speak with you today on your journey as another woman that is seeking to understand men better during a time where women are really getting empowered and understanding a lot more about themselves and educating others about women movements and women's issues, you know, where does that stand for, for men? So um, I would love it if you can just give me a little bit of um, just a quick spiel about you and what you do, where you are now in your life and, you know, how that, how that book came to be for you. Sure. Absolutely. Well, thank you for having me. It's so nice to be here with you. Um, I'm obviously a huge fan of the concept of your project. Mm -hmm. Um, so I'm a, I'm a journalist, uh, by training. I, uh, got my, cut my teeth reporting financial news for Bloomberg for several nice. years and then, um, moved over to Univision, uh, to be a health reporter for them. Um, Univision launched an English speaking cable network called Fusion that I hosted a television for, for five years about health and relationships. Uh, we got a Peabody Award nomination for that. Um, and uh, so I was hosting the show mm -hmm. in 2017 and our second highest performing show on the network, extremely popular audience split about 60% men, 40% women. Um, and so, you know, like fairly, fairly even, but in 2017, when the Harvey Weinstein scandal broke, a lot of men who watched my show started writing into me to say, are you going to do a season on this? Because I have so much to say about what's happening right now, but I'm kind of afraid to say anything. I don't want to get in trouble. Hmm. And I realized that that was news to a lot of people because at the same time that all these DMs were pouring in from men, I was also being invited to speak at Me Too events that were mostly attended by women and survivors and these incredibly powerful, thoughtful, important conversations, as you said, right? Women sharing their stories, um, you know, initially just kind of like the sharing of your stories and experiences is very cathartic, but then the conversation would start to move toward where do we go from here? What will we do now? And inevitably people would look around the room and someone would say, where are the men? There are no men here. Men don't care. And I knew men do care because they're all in my inbox and I would ask them straight up, how come you're not going? I, there are events about this in every city, you know, around the country where are, have you looked at attending one? And, and generally the feeling from these guys was like, I ain't going to that. Like, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, uh, like they didn't invite me. They don't want yeah. me there. And that maybe that was actually accurate in some cases, right? So modern manhood, the book, was born because, well, my publisher, Simon Schuster, came to me about doing a book for them. And I pitched them on three ideas. And this was the one I put at the bottom. 
mm-hmm. because I just thought this is a really important project, but I don't know if I want to do it. I felt like I might get it coming and going mm-hmm. a hard. I'm sure you feel this hard to land this one. Right. Um, so of course, Simon and Schuster was like, that's the one we want. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and then I just started reporting, right? Like the, probably the difference between you and I was that because I had the TV show and all the DMS in my inbox, I, I was ready to go. Like the men right. had already come to me. Um, whereas I'm assuming you're seeking out men. Yeah. Speak, right. Mm-hmm. Which is different. That is so interesting. You know, what was your apprehension about reporting about men? Was it because you're like, I'm a woman and, you know, it's kind of awkward because I was a very um, big participant in a lot of women's movements. So for me, it was cathartic in a way, like you said, and it was more like, I want to educate men. And it was like, I was seeking out just like a collection of men. And I was like, well, there's no way that I'm going to create allyship this way with my like very interrogative <laughs> attitude. So I had to just like peel back, you know, and, and, and change my conversation tactics to really get to know them. Uh, whereas with you, you didn't have to seek them. They were coming to you and they yeah. knew that you were a safe space, right? Yeah. So how was that journey for you? And why were you kind of apprehensive about Um, moving with modern manhood? I was apprehensive because I've previously reported on topics that are new in some ways. Um, Like my specialty had been where shifting cultural attitudes and new technology development was changing the ways that millennials were meeting, hooking up, staying connected. And so there was like a sort of, um, you know, like exploratory journalistic angle to it, right? And this, what we're dealing with now, even though me too is new and what we're, and there are so many gray areas because we're in a new terrain with all of this, the conversations are actually extremely old. Mm -hmm. And I was nervous about really getting into it um, with men when a lot of my previous reporting has been on women's health, right? So I'd had many conversations with women who had been hurt by men. Yeah. And now you know, modern manhood doesn't deal with any violent stories. Like I was very specific about what we were going to cover. So um, anything that is illegal is, is not in the book, but most men I found were very curious, not about that, but like, cause they knew, like, I don't, I'm not really going to end up on that side of things but everything else feels like a gray area to me. And I felt like there was so much work to be done there. Um, But I was nervous about really getting into these like old, old narratives with people um, because as a reporter, you have to remain at least somewhat objective. Um, And as a woman, I'd have to come to this project with just the utmost compassion. And that, you know, I hadn't, 
this is like a new level of um, professional skill for me, really. So how did that experience go for you? Like how many, how many men did you interview and what were the old conversations that you had and were you able to discover anything new that's kind of more relative to kind of the modern world today and how we interact with each other? Yeah, so I talked to around 75 men in total, um, ranging in ages from 18 to 62, all all over the country, right? I'm sure you're doing this as well, but like what we know obviously is that there's no monolithic male experience and it really matters um, where in the country you were raised, what race you are, what class you come from, whether you had a really strong male figure in your life for the good or for the worse or, wh- or whether you didn't, um, you know? And so it was really important to get that kind of cross-section reporting. Um, so where it's like, you know, Upper East Side to Oakland to like rural North Carolina and, and everything in between. Um, I, it was a weird year. It was a, the year that I only talked to men. I, t- I spoke to like nobody else. <laughs> I had no time for, you know, a personal life. So I was just reporting and I really um, was able to, like, I was information finding, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, sometimes you, I'm hearing a story like, okay, so I wanted to call the book, but I'm one of the good guys okay. because I heard all the time from guys, they were like, Okay. First of all, they were really thankful that I was writing the book, which felt good because they trusted me having come from the show. And they felt like, um, a lot of them felt like men were being like nailed to the wall and they wanted to be heard. And so, you know, they would come and they would say, I'm glad you're writing this because do I have a story for you? Now, listen, I'm one of the good guys, but, and then, you know, and then a story. And so, you know, some of those stories were really pretty outrageous um, in in many ways, but usually I really could put this kind of wall, um, you know, like a a barrier where this isn't Cleo the person or the woman. Um, This is really, I'm doing, okay, here was my big fear about not writing the book. Okay. My fear was that We had men who were previously oblivious to the condition or the experiences that many women have been having. Mm -hmm. They thought everything was fine. And now through the stories of Me Too, the veil had been somewhat lifted for them. And they were like, wow, I didn't realize it was so bad. What can I do? And so they were coming to a table that they had not even known existed and they hadn't wanted to be a part of anyway. And so now they're sitting at this table. And meanwhile, as I said, in these events that I was at where women were just like, rightfully so, pissed, men don't care. I had this great fear that if I didn't write this book and more people didn't do projects kind of like we're doing, that in 10 years, we would have really missed a huge opportunity for us to come together air our grievances and then say, okay, how are we gonna up-level our day-to-day behavior? Because what I don't want to happen, uh, I don't wanna have this conversation. 
I don't have the same song <laughs> in 10 years. Yeah. So that was how I was able to, um, like, you know, keep it all together. Yeah. Were there any stories that were just kind of like triggering to you where you're just like, dude, this, this is not a good enough answer. Like try, like be better. It, I, yeah. 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 The story that leads the sex chapter, um, is it came to me from a guy who heard I was reporting this book and specifically heard that I was interested in hearing from men from whom they had strong reactions to the Aziz Ansari story. Um, And for your listeners, just like a short recap of this story is Aziz Ansari had up until this time been this like extremely lovable, self-deprecating, humorous comedian. It also co-authored a book called Modern Romance, which I professionally cited many times. Um, He is, you know, he was until that time, like considered quote unquote, one of the good guys. Mm -hmm. Then a story came out about him where a young woman had gone on a, met him at a party um, and then gone on a date with him and the date had gone pretty well. Uh, He invited her back to his place. She went back. Um, She said to him, just to be clear, like, I just want to, you know, like hang out. He had said like, let's watch a movie. He was like, yeah, yeah, all good. She goes back. He makes a move. She says, no, he tries again. She's like, listen, I'm serious. Like, I really do just want a movie. Should I go? Uh, And he's like, no, 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 it's fine. And then waits a minute, tries again. She relents. They hook up a little bit. She leaves uh, in an Uber and he texts her and is like, hey, I had a really nice time, thanks. And she's crying in the Uber and she tells him over text, I really think that you need to know that that was a bad experience for me. So you don't do that again. Now, the way that that this story got handled by the press, I think was like became its own monster. But if we just looked at the optics of that experience, it's probably so familiar to so many women um, who are listening to this. And my, my theory uh, so like when I would ask people, what did the Aziz Ansari scenario mean to you? It was sort of this tipping point for the reactions to me too, because up until then it had been very black and white cases of like really awful, like Harvey Weinstein, Bill Cosby, etc. Um, and this situation, some people felt like, okay, this has all gone too far. That's just a hookup. Like I had, and this, it wasn't cut across gendered lines. It wasn't like women were like, that's terrible. And men were like, I don't see the problem. Some men told me that was a terrible situation. I I heard about that. And it reminded me of something my sister told me happened to her. That's awful. And I had some women tell me, I don't see what the hell, what's the problem with that? That's every hookup I ever had in college and after. Mm -hmm. And my theory is, just because it's so common, it's almost ubiquitous, doesn't mean that we can't and shouldn't do better, right? People shouldn't be leaving in Ubers crying. Mm-hmm. But the story that leads the sex chapter, and so that's the whole discussion about the sex chapter, but the story that leads the sex chapter came to me 
um, from a man who lives in Maryland. And this had happened to him in 2011. So like 10 years earlier, but it had stuck with him until then. And he said, when he heard that I was gonna be talking about the Aziz Ansari story, he really wanted to get this off his chest. Okay. So this guy in 2011 uh, lived in DC, um, self-described as a late bloomer and said at the time he had like a group of co-ed friends. He, at the time also, he was in his late 20s. It's mm-hmm. so like a little, like a, a late bloomer really. Okay. Um, he had a crush on one of the girls in his friend group and that year, New Year's Eve, everyone was out partying and he was dancing with the girl. And then he invited some people back to his place. The girl took him up on the offer and so did one other guy in the group. Okay. So three of them go back to his place and they continue partying. Then around 2 a.m., the third guy, the third wheel basically, yeah. is like, <laughs> hey, I'm going to get out of here. Mm-hmm. And at that point, the woman says, oh, I should probably go too, because this is like before Uber and she lived across town and public transit was closed. So he, this guy um, says, well, you know what? Why don't you just stay here? And she's like, are you sure? He's like, yeah, 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 all good. And then like, I can drive you home in the morning. She's like, okay. So the third guy leaves, she stays. He offers her pajamas. Mm-hmm. She's like, okay, let me go get changed. So she puts on his pajamas and then there's only one bedroom in the apartment. So they get into bed. Mm -hmm. So in his mind, she's in my bed. uh, So he makes a move. And Uh she's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. No, I I thought we were like friends. I'm just here to sleep. So now at this point in the story, he tells me, He's kind of hazy on everything because it's two in the morning, New Year's Eve, and he's wasted. But what he remembers thinking was, and again, this is a late bloomer, so not a lot of experience with women. He's like, all girls say no at first. Like, that's what they have to say. Yeah. So then, the way he described it to me He like waited a second, had that thought and then was like, okay. And then went back for another move where he yanked her pants down. Mm. And she is terrified and jumps out of the bed and is like, what are you doing? And he is completely like shocked because he, he thought, wait, I thought like all girls say no at first. And she goes on to the, in the couch and like slams the door and he stays there awake all night, like really terrified. Like, how did I get this so wrong? Like, oh my God, what have I done? And he, now I met, I didn't talk to her. So also this is like, you know, secondhand reporting, but what he told me happened the next morning is that he went out there and he said, I am so sorry. I feel terrible, you know, please forgive me. And that she did end up forgiving him. And actually now they're quite good platonic friends. Mm -hmm. And that this time has always stuck with him, like scarred him because 
he realizes that he came so close to to really I mean I think yanking someone's underwear down is enough right to be traumatizing but he knows it could have gone even further because in his mind all women say no at first yeah and it's a way to like prove yourself right and that that's the narrative that a lot of men have been told and it's like okay this one's a hard to get one like just keep trying harder and harder right I know it. So I, when he was telling me that story, I really had, like, I was honestly grateful that this was not an on-camera TV interview, which I'm used to doing because you kind of have to affix your face a little. And I knew <laughs> as he was telling me this story, it was like horrifying really. Um, and yeah, so that was one of the ones there were several, but that was one that I just thought, yeah. Yeah. And I think it's interesting the more you speak to men, you realize like they always have good intentions. No one's like, oh yeah, I'm ready to rape someone. You know, it's not yeah. like that's yeah. like the plan for tonight. And it's just so much that's been misunderstood. Mm. And then when you get that, there's all this confusion. And then it's like, oh shit, like, am I a bad person? Mm. So mm. You know, mm. like more of the morality of it. So what does being a good man mean? Uh, in your, in your idea personally, from all of those interviews you've had? Well, okay. So the book basically is, you know, each chapter is like a different area of your personal life, like dating, sex, money, parenting work, because every way that we have taught men to be men and frankly, women to be women is complicated and has issues. Right. And it's like, it varies depending on setting um, and how well you know someone and their personality. But the overarching like takeaway of modern manhood is this idea that we have really put men, um, there's a concept called the man box basically. Mm. And actually it's the only graphic in the book. So I'll just read you a couple of the qualities that are listed yeah. in the book. Um, Okay, so the man box is, is a concept used in men's work. Um, and the idea is that here, you, I'll show you, your viewers can't see it, but it's like a literal box. And um, there are qualities listed within the box. And if you fit these qualities, then you are deemed by society to be a quote unquote, good man. Like, that's what a man is. Mm -hmm. So do not cry openly or express emotions with the exception of anger. Do not express weakness or fear. Demonstrate power and control. Aggression, dominance. Be a protector. Do not be, quote unquote, like a woman. Be heterosexual. Do not be like, quote unquote, a gay man. Be tough, athletic, have strength and courage. Make decisions do not need help. Mm -hmm. So there are some noble aspects and desirable aspects to those qualities, of course, but when a man does not exhibit one of those qualities or does the opposite, he gets dinged by society as quote unquote, not a real man. And the kind of person that fits inside of that box is divorced from compassion, vulnerability, 
any emotion besides anger, which is, you know, frankly terrifying. Mm -hmm. Um, And so when it comes to being a good man, what I offer to guys in the book are these exercises um, to think really critically less about being a good man, quote unquote, because I think that that is very problematic and confusing Mm -hmm. and more about being a good person. So like, take for example, the question men ask me all the time, which is totally insane, but they're like, it's so confusing these days. I don't even know, am I supposed to hold the door open for the woman coming up behind me? Because there's this urban myth that women are running around yelling at men when they hold the door open for them. Okay. I'm like, I've never seen that, but every guy is like, no, 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 it happened to my friend. She just like flipped out. So the question of whether you hold the, does a guy, does a man hold the door open for a woman in 2021 is the wrong question to ask. The question is, do you want to hold the door open? hundred percent. Right. Mm -hmm. And hopefully if you're a good person, you'll say, yeah, because I, I'm the kind of person that holds doors open for people coming up behind me. And if you're not that kind of person, that's really good information to have about yourself. Right. Mm -hmm. But if you are that person, then you're kind of clear, like, okay, this isn't really about if it's a woman or a man, So that also eliminates that question. You just hold the door open for anyone coming up behind you. And that makes it really simple. And so should you encounter the, this crazy woman that like yells at people when she has the door open for her, I say to the guy, you will have thought about it. You will have thought about what, what is this behavior that I do? Why do I do it? Oh, I do it because That's what I think a good person does. And I want to be a good person. So she yells at you. You can say to her, well, I didn't mean to ruin your day. It's like, not because you're a woman. I just hold the door open for everyone coming up behind me. Have a good day. Mm -hmm. And that I think is a really helpful example because, you know, we know younger generations, some of them are just throwing out the gender binary altogether. And I don't think that that works for everybody, but The question of what a good man is, is a distraction. Hmm. The question of what a good person does is much clearer, right? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And I, and I, I was kind of getting to that in my journey so far. Yeah. Like that gender is getting less and less important that it is more about characteristics it's about the self. It's about the reflection of judgment and expectations, you know, like holding the door open for someone as a reflection of like, oh, I'm this type of person that does this versus, oh, you know, like you said, all women are going to say no first, or, you know, this is what you do for women, or they're going to yell at you if you don't do it. Uh, and then you're just acting out of obligation now. And yes. there's, no, there's something missing. There's yes. no, it's not genuine anymore. Yes. Yes. And that's very helpful. Um, My cat's going to join the show. (laughs) Um, Excuse me. That's very helpful, I think, too, and to be applied to other scenarios, more complicated ones, because if you think about um, basically what I learned from speaking with so many men is that 
there's a lot of behavior that we've been taught to do that we don't really question mm-hmm. why, why we do it. And so now that it's being called into question, people feel really defensive because they actually have no idea why they're doing what they're doing. That's just what everyone else does and what they were taught to do. So when it comes to intimacy, for example, I recommend that, I mean, it sounds so obvious, like communicate, 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 but really like, first of all, think about what you want out of the date that night. Is sex even on the table? It like, this is, you know, we walk out of the house and we don't really like think about these things. Um, men included. I mean, like the assumption is like men would always want sex, but that's not always true. Um, so I offer for them to think about first, like, what are they looking for out of the evening and then communicate it. And some guys will say to me, like, I feel like if I said something like that, I'm going to like, there's no way that's going to be, that's going to work. Like someone's going to say like, I'm creepy or whatever. And what I offer is like, it might not work for everyone. And it, some people will say like, that's a total turnoff, but it's, you don't have to match with everyone. If you are truly concerned, right. About showing up as a good guy, you want to match with someone who really appreciates you thinking about this stuff and showing up vulnerably. You don't want to match with someone who's like, please don't talk to me about any of your intentions. I just want to wing it and hope for the best. Yeah. And I think there's that idea of like, oh, I'm just going to know, you know, just like having those decisions, like, you know how you always want to know the future before it starts. And it's like, but then you lose the whole point of the interaction. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think once you set those intentions, then you're not as, you're not going to hit those roadblocks along the way. Right. And I think some of us might dramatize those roadblocks and be like, oh, this is the way things are supposed to be. It's supposed to be rocky and uncertain. And like, that's part of the drama, but it's actually like really unhealthy if we follow those expectations in a way of like, it's not, it's not for me to say, it's just like, leave it to the universe. And it's going to be like that. And it's like, no, you can literally just say what your intentions are. And this is what you want. And that person can reciprocate or not. And everyone's allowed to speak as authentically as they can. That's, I mean, because this is the thing I also say, um, you really have to get comfortable being uncomfortable right now, because Mm -hmm. the standard is, for example, that people leave hookups crying in an Uber. Like that's so common that people said, I don't see what the big deal is. If we are really serious about not wanting that to be the standard in 10 years, then we really have to start doing things radically different. And so it's like certainly gonna be uncomfortable and awkward, but it will be worth it in the long run, right? If we're really serious about kind of like changing the standard, the standard narrative. Mm-hmm. So yeah. after speaking to these guys and getting a little bit more of an understanding of like, hey, like I'm, I'm a good guy, like I'm meant to do this. Uh, it just wasn't communicated properly based on whatever restraints or expectations or considerations that they thought. What are these new conversations that you think women can have with men to help make the conversation a little bit more seamless because you're right. It is going to be difficult and awkward and 
there are no standards right now for this type of communication. So what are your personal strategies on moving forward and kind of pushing the needle in that direction? I first, I want to say like, it's, a, it's, it's tough for everyone. And it's especially, I never want to be the one to tell women, listen, because I think women have done a lot of listening and now is the time for us to speak. Mm. But what I've learned from speaking to so many men is that they care and they're also intimidated and they're frustrated. And it's that I, I already like see some people being like rolling their eyes, like, oh, they're frustrated. <laughs> really? Um, what we, what I will say is that like the prevailing narrative that we have about men and women in the current structure of our society is that men are on top and women are on the bottom. And because of that, women suffer and men are fine. Mm-hmm. And men are not fine. Uh, there's something called um, deaths of despair. It's sort of like a clinical term. Um, and that includes deaths related to suicide, drug overdose and self-harm, um, drug and alcohol overdose. And deaths of despair are exponentially on the rise for men in the United States. And even the American Society, uh, American Psychological Association, APA, um, in 2018, they put out a statement to all of their members, which rarely happens. And this statement said that masculinity, as it's generally understood, is harmful to men. And for people that are counseling men to understand that we are asking the way we have raised men to not have feelings, to not um, cry, to not laugh too much, um, to be silent about their struggles. That is killing men. It's also killing women because then men are killing women. Um, but I say that to because we don't hear that enough and we don't know that enough. And what I heard from men was that they feel frustrated and isolated and they feel like the weight of the world is on their shoulders and no one sees it. And I think that that's really helpful information just to have for women so that when they're coming to the table, not that women need to caretake men at all whatsoever, that's not what I'm saying, but to know that that's sort of um, a history and experience that many men feel. And so when we're coming to the table to talk about these things, Mm -hmm. um, some women, are already pissed, rightfully so. And so there's like this level of like frustration already coming there. If you can set it aside, please do. If you can't, I completely understand. And don't (laughs) worry, like I've got your back, like no problem. But if you can set it aside, please do, because there is a lot of um, up-leveling that we can do if you can set aside your frustration. Mm -hmm. And what I'd also say is to really watch your internal judgments, because Of course, like to report this book fully, I did speak to women as well to kind of get a counter viewpoint. And what I heard from women is that we're pretty conflicted 
about what we want from men. And of course, again, this is different depending on if the woman is 18 or 62, if she's from Oakland or the Upper East Side or rural North Carolina, you know, if she, what her personal preferences are. But I asked women, like, for example, um, this also another really basic question. Uh, do you want the man that you're dating to pay for you? Mm-hmm. And the, it, we're all over the place with it, which is totally fine. But whatever your feeling is of it. Like, so I, some women I talked to were like, I don't know why, but I want to be paid for, even though I'm a feminist in every other way. (laughs) And I get that that's kind of contradictory, but like, that's just what I like. And I've been like, okay, cool, cool. Do you say that? Do you, do you express that to them? And they're like, no, of course not. And I was like, well, wait, how is he supposed to know that? And they're like, I don't know, you know, read my mind. And so this is like this kind of thing where also I heard from men, um, once I did cry and the woman that he cried in front of judge, judge them. Like I've heard this from several, right. Mm -hmm. And we have our own internalized misogyny. And so like what we're asked, we kind of put men in this tough position of like, please be vulnerable and emotionally available, but also still be a rock. And it's, you know, so. Yeah. There's a lot of conflicting requirements with that, with all of that. Right. Yes. And which is understandable. It's just also the kind of internal work that we're asking men to do. Women also need to do different kind of internal work. Right. Um, and what everyone really needs to do is know how they feel, know what they want, and communicate it openly because mm-hmm. the mind reading is a disaster. It's really mm-hmm. a disaster. Yeah. I think, I mean, what I learned, at least in my experience, is that women are starting to adopt these masculine traits, you know, mm. the, the non-emotional type, the aggression and, you know, the strong, silent resilience of it. And if we don't talk about the subject right now that that man box that you're saying that you know that goes against our kind of normal natural way of communicating and mm. navigating through life mm. then mm. it doesn't matter about gender anymore we're all going to be in that box everyone's and, in the box right yeah, exactly yeah. which yeah. is like instead of trying to get people out of it let's not step into it you know mm-hmm, exactly and yeah. I think it's it's really that shift of perspective to start realizing like, hey, we're not going to do any better if we're just switching who's in the box, right? Um, I, you know, I know we're running out of time, but I'm just curious, like what has been one of the most surprising things you've learned 50 men in? I still don't know how to talk to men. <laughs> like after all of that, I was like, I need so much more practice um, that... I just created so many judgments on them before I even spoke to them. And I'm always surprised. And I'm like, why do I do this? You know, and catching myself while I'm doing that. And I'm like, oh, this is surprising. This is surprising. Oh, I can actually relate to this person. This isn't an alien. And before I think I was so used to be like, this is all of the feminine energy that I am. And this is all the masculine energy that they are and made sure that they're very separate. And then we kind of just align on like, I don't know, chemistry which was just 
whatever your mood was probably that day. It doesn't even suggest anything. So I think realizing where I was putting special attention to on just like the mood of something compared to like, hey, maybe me and this person actually have things in common that we can talk about on a deeper level. And I just never gave them that permission to really connect with me on that level and realizing like that has definitely um, been an issue with my relationship with men. Clearly, if I never let them in like that and here I am opening up to like strangers. So, yeah. Oh my gosh, how powerful. Yeah. So this has been so great. Um, I just want to wrap up. If you want to just let us know how we can get in touch with you and, um, and have your book. And if there's anything else you'd like to share on the channel today. Great. Yes. Well, you can get in touch with me everywhere. I'm on all social platforms, Cleo Stiller. My website is cleostiller.net. You can email me through that. Um, I do really fun, but also team building corporate workshops based on the chapter of uh, the workbook. Um, Modern Manhood is the number one uh, new release on Amazon. You can get anywhere mm. and get in touch if you have any questions. Make sure to subscribe. And if you'd like to be on the show or know of someone with a unique perspective, slide into my DMs at Miss Amanda Chen on Instagram. And I'll see you next Wednesday with more episodes of The 100 Masked Men.